So what's a rabbi to do? You know, you arrive at the eighth day of Pesach, and not only is it the eighth day of Pesach, but it's because there was no Shabbos Cholamor, there wasn't a Shabbos of in-betweenness. We reach our Shirim tomorrow, the Song of Songs. In the Hasidic tradition, the eighth day of Pesach is also called the Day of the Messiah, where there's a meal, the Messiah's meal is eaten tomorrow afternoon. In recognition that at least in the tropes of the tradition, the, the exodus from Egypt is foreshadowing, it is prefiguring a greater exodus called the Messianic Era. Like the days when you left Mitzrayim, I will once again show you wondrous things. And so we arrive at the shores of the eighth day with all of these themes. And so... Shir Shirim, the Song of Songs, which for the rabbis and for the early Christian fathers also was an allegory of the relationship between the soul and God, an allegory of the church and Jesus, always allegorizing the very clearly erotic and beautiful imagery of this book. It was no less than Rabbi Akiva, the greatest of all of the rabbis of the Tanaitic period, who said, if all of Scripture is holy, the Song of Songs is holy of holies, Kodesh Kadashim, the holy of holies. So we begin with that verse, the first one. Shir Shirim Asher Lishlomo The Song of Songs written by someone named Shlomo The rabbis, of course, in their way, say Shlomo, of course, can refer to Solomon, the son of David. But deeper, they say, Lemi shalom shalo, the song of songs to the one who is called Shlomo, the one to whom peace belongs, referring, of course, to God. The song of songs of God. That is the way that the rabbis read the opening verse of that most sacred of texts, the text about relationship, about fire, about intimacy, about passion, about connection. The king has brought me into his inner chambers, that deep inner place. So we'll footnote that for the next couple of minutes because we'll come back to it. But there must be in that verse something that speaks to peace. The one to whom peace belongs, the song of songs to the peace one, the peaceful one, must tell us something about peace. And so on my mind, of course, is peace. This whole week, I've been reading back and forth all of the, the, the conversation, if you want to call it that, between those who support the recent work of Peter Beinert, Crisis of Zionism, and those who adamantly oppose it. So much ink is spilt in the name of clarifying what it will be that will bring peace. It's not very peaceful at all. One salient feature that has stood out for me very much connects to another theme that is in this weekend. As the Israelites arrived at the Sea of Reeds, you can imagine how terrified they were and the relief when the waters split And when the pursuers who were running after them were drowned in the waters, 
you can imagine the song that they sang because we have it. We have that song of exaltation, of relief, of safety, and at last, I'm free. And at that very moment, the rabbis say that the angels in heaven were ready to sing their own song. They were ready to say, wow, after all of these years, 210 years of slavery, we've arrived, we're safe. And as they open their mouths, the angels in heaven, the rabbis paint a picture of a divine taskmaster who says to those angels, are you joking? My creatures, the work of my hands, are drowning in the sea, and you have the audacity to sing. You have the audacity to offer up at this moment a tribal invocation of the highest order. You have the audacity at this moment to revel in your own skin and not recognize the greater drama that is unfolding. And we, sons and daughters of those Israelites, to this day, recognize the clarity of that divine rebuke. We, too, limit our joy on the last days of the holiday, reciting half a hallel. We remember at the Seder by reducing our cups with every drop for the plagues, for those who had to suffer while we gained our freedom. And inherent in that midrash is a tension that all of us who call ourselves liberal progressive Jews struggle with week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, and year out. What does it mean to call ourselves members of the tribe? We are, after all, tribal. We are, after all, a very clearly defined, distinct nation. We have clear boundaries, clear practices. We have clear issues of identity, well, maybe not so clear. And we struggle between the voice of the universal and that which in us identifies with the broadest imaginable swath of humanity and that part of us that is nourished and nurtured by the sense of family, by our own ethnicity, by our own familiarity, by that which is us and not them. We live in that tension. We straddle those two worlds. Daniel Gordas, in a response to Peter Beinart's book, which heavily criticizes the state of Israel, and the crisis that is the crisis of American Zionism, writes this week that what Peter Beinart was terrified of and all of his ilk, he said, all of those liberal progressive Jews who are advocating for criticizing Israel and advocating for speaking out against policies and practices that we feel are immoral and not living up to our ethical and moral standards, is that underneath it all, he says, is that really, if you scratch the surface, we are all terrified of being tribal. Those of us, he says, who are liberal progressives have a knee-jerk shame of our tribal affiliation, if you will. That to be an affiliate, to join a group, is to somehow lose the broader group that we belong to. And I think that there's something 
to his critique. I think there is, at the core of those of us who yearn for a universal Jewish expression, sometimes, if we ask ourselves honestly, we're a little bit too Jewish. We get scared. We want so badly to make everyone feel comfortable at the table. We are the first ones to say, oh, our tradition, that's okay. How about your tradition? Sometimes we can get caught at the forefront of multiculturalism as long as it's not too much Jewish culture. Sometimes we can take courses in all manner of Sanskrit and yoga, but at the request or per perhaps invitation to study Hebrew, uh, maybe not. We can chant, right, at a kirtan, or go to ecstatic practices of other traditions, but when the invitation to come to a shul and literally let your hair down and dance happens, it's a little bit too not Jewish, or too Jewish, too Jewish. I want my Judaism to be the way it is so that I can reject it. So, <laughs> and if we were to scratch the surface though on the other side, of those who identify and affiliate so exclusively that the question of a world-centric posture, a posture that includes the widest imaginable humanity, when that question arises, there can be a knee-jerk reaction, of course, in the opposite direction. You have chosen us from amongst all of the nations. You've loved us. You have raised us above all of those languages. The subtle, maybe, subtle notion that we are chosen amongst all of humanity to bring about a better world. That perhaps in every tradition known to mankind there has been truth and falsehood and that we must extract the best of what religion has to offer from every place that it arises. That, too, is the opposite. And so, a term that I like to take with me whenever I hear these conversations is something that I was introduced to by a thinker named Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber, the great American philosopher, coined a term about evolution, which, of course, E.O. Wilson and all of those who have spoken this week about affiliation and the natural affiliation gene had it right that we move through stages in our own personal evolution, in our own national evolution, and at each stage we acquire various traits, various qualities, various strengths, various faculties at that stage of development. But once we graduate, we expand beyond it, evolve beyond it, we take with us the salient, important features, we transcend and we include. Transcending and including. To transcend and include is something each and every one of us has done, whether you know it or not. If you are here and you function in the world, and I assume you do, you have transcended and included. You went from transcending identific identification with the body to transcending the body and including it. You've transcended your ego to some extent when you express yourself and love for another. You transcend and you include. We transcend, we include. And so Wilbur said, we move from egocentrism to ethnocentrism, 
from loving myself to loving my family. In the broadest meaning of that term, my mother, my father, my sisters, my, well, not my sisters, my brothers, that family, my nation. And then upon identifying with my nation, when I become called to a greater call, I identify with a larger vision from ethnocentrism to world-centrism. If I become world-centric and I reject my ethnocentrism, I've transcended and excluded, and it will come back to bite me in the tochus. The soul wants all of itself to appear. And world-centrism isn't enough. We have to be cosmocentric. Unless you think that is my personal perspective or one of someone named Ken Wilber, I give you the great Abraham Isaac HaKohen Cook, the first chief rabbi of Palestine, commenting on the first verse of the Song of Songs. There is one who sings the song of his own life, and in himself he finds everything, his full spiritual satisfaction. There is another who sings the song of his people. He leaves the circle of his own individual self because he finds it without sufficient breath, without an idealistic basis. He aspires towards the heights. He attaches himself with a gentle love to the entire community of Israel, and together with her he sings her songs. He feels grieved at her afflictions and delights in her hopes, contemplates noble and pure thoughts about her past and her future, and probes with love and wisdom her inner spiritual essence, ethnocentrism. There is another who reaches toward more distant realms and goes beyond the boundary of Israel to sing the songs of all of mankind. His spirit extends to the wider vistas of the majesty of man in general and his noble essence. He aspires towards man's general goal and looks forward toward his higher perfection. And from this source of life, he draws the subject of his meditations and study. And then there is one who rises toward wider horizons until he links himself with all of existence, with all of God's creations, with all the worlds, sings his song with all of them. And it is of one such as this that the tradition has said, whoever sings a song each day is assured of having a share in the world that is coming. And then there is one who rises with all of these songs in one ensemble. They all join their voices together. They sing their songs with beauty. Each one lends vitality and life to the other. They are the sounds of joy and gladness, sounds of jubilation and celebration, sounds of ecstasy and holiness, the song of the self, the song of the people, the song of man and the song of the world all merge in her at all times in every hour, this song rises to become the song of holiness, the song of God, the song of Israel in its full strength and beauty, in its full authenticity and greatness. The name Israel stands for Shir El, the song of God, a simple song, a twofold song, a threefold song, and a fourfold song. It is the song of songs of Solomon, Shlomo, which means peace and wholeness. Shir HaShirim, Asher the Shlomo, the song of songs, 
belonging to the one who knows how to make peace and bring abiding human love. <laughs>